and welcome to the program, UFO Warning. Today's topic, Ben Rich and Skunk Works. That's right, Ben Rich and Skunk Works. Now, this is some of the stuff that goes back, clear back to the 1940s. Of course, Ben Rich has uh, passed away back in, I believe, 1995. But I think it's important to talk about uh, this subject because it plays such an important role in modern-day UFO lore, and it's important that we uh, talk about the big-time players, some of them still with us, some of them have passed on, but as we examine uh, this idea of UFO technology, back engineering, the deep state, these are the players' names who keep coming up over and over again, and it's a good thing to at least have an idea of who they are and what they're about. Sometimes uh, their importance can be a little uh, overplayed. Sometimes it can be completely underplayed. But as we begin to take a look at the UFO saga, we see all of these actors interwoven together over time. And it really does uh, create a fascinating tapestry of, of uh, facts, places, names, states, it can get a little confusing sometimes, but if we just stop and take a podcast now and then to talk about who some of these big-time actors, who some of these big-time players were and still are, it helps us as we try to get our mind around what's going on in the UFO field today. Now, I found the first article here from Wikipedia because it seemed to be the most... You know, I don't use Wikipedia a lot, but sometimes it is a good repository for this sort of stuff. Um, you don't have to believe every word that's written here, but... In general, when it comes to this kind of thing, they will get some of the facts down to kind of give us a launching pad for where we're going. And this one uh, article is linked uh, at the Twitter account, UFO Warning. Of course, you can get there by going to sub warning UFO, excuse me, at warning sub UFO, at warning sub UFO. And while you're there, do a follow. Now, it says here Skunk Works. It says Skunk Works is an official pseudonym for Lockheed Martin's. Advanced Development Program, or ADP, formerly called Lockheed Advanced Development Projects. It is responsible for a number of aircraft designs, including the U-2, the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, the Lockheed F-117 Nighthawk, Lockheed Martin F-22 Raptor, and Lockheed Martin F-35 Lightning II, which are used in the air forces of several countries. Its name was taken from the Moonshine Factory in the comic strip Little Abner. The designation Skunk Works, or Skunk Works, one word, is widely used in business, engineering, and technical fields to designate a group within an organization given a high degree of autonomy and unhampered by bureaucracy with the task of working on advanced or secret projects. Of course, this is um, the idea from which people developed the notion that uh, Lockheed Martin was back engineering UFOs, and this kind of goes along with Bob Lazar's uh, story that he was back engineering UFOs. Now it says here under history, it says there are conflicting observations about the birth of Skunk Works. Ben Rich and Kelly Johnson set the origin as June 1943 in Burbank, California. They relate essentially the same chronology in their autobiographies. Theirs is theirs is the official Lockheed. Skunk Works story, and it says the Air Tactical Service Command, or ATSC, of the Army Air Force met with Lockheed Aircraft Corporation to express its need for a jet fighter. 
A rapidly growing German jet threat gave Lockheed an opportunity to develop an airframe around the most powerful jet engine that Allied forces had access to, the British Goblin. Lockheed was chosen to develop the jet because of its past interest in jet development and its previous contracts with, Air, with the Air Force. One month after ATSC and Lock, in the Lockheed meeting, the young engineer Clarence L. Kelly Johnson and other associate engineers hand-delivered the initial XP-80 proposal to ATSC. Two days later, the go-ahead was given to Lockheed to start development, and the Skunk Works was born, with Kelly Johnson at the helm. The formal contract for the XP-80 did not arrive at Lockheed until op- October 16, 1943, some four months after work had already begun. This would prove to be a common practice within the Skunk Works. Many times a customer would come to the Skunk Works with a request, and on a handshake the project would begin. No contracts in place, no official submittal process. Kelly Johnson and his Skunk Works team designed and built the XP-80 in only 143 days, seven fewer than was required. That's pretty incredible when you think about it. Here these individuals are working with the U.S. government to develop uh, that jet technology at the very beginning, actually before the beginning of World War II. So this project, Skunk Works for Lockheed Martin, goes back a long way. And we can see, of course, that it was based that at the very foundation we have some super smart engineers that are developing much of the technology we see in aerospace and in the Air Force uh, warplanes today. And it goes on, and then it has a little uh, article, a little uh, history here. Where it talks about in 1955, the Skunk Works received a contract from the CIA to build a spy plane known as the U-2, with the intention of flying over the Soviet Union and photographing sites of strategic interest. Now think about that. That's 1955 when they built the U-2 spy plane. 1955. 65 years ago. Imagine the technology they have today. 65 years later. We go on here. It says, Kelly Johnson headed the Skunk Works until 1975. He was succeeded by Ben Rich. In 1976, the Skunk Works began production on a pair of stealth technology demonstrators for the U.S. Air Force named Have Blue in building 82 at Burbank. These scaled-down demonstrators built in only 18 months were a revolutionary step forward in aviation technology because their extremely small radar cross-section after a series of successful flights beginning in 1977, the Air Force awarded Skunk Works a contract to build the F-117 stealth fighter on November 1st, 1978. 1978, they started that project. And remember, the stealth fighter, of course it has the composite materials and the design uh, to evade radar, a design that's so complicated and, and uh, so hard to fly that they have to have computers aided in flying the machine to keep it in the air. And remember that some of you may recall there was uh, an interview a few years ago where some of the engineers were talking about the stealth fighter and they let it slip that this thing is producing such uh, enormous amounts of electromagnetic energy that it's warping uh, the time-space continuum, I guess you would call it, around the, the airplane and that's what really uh, prevents the radar from from uh, picking it out. I think that radar that 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 conversation was cut short because that information was considered classified at the time. So just imagine these guys were building these kind of aircraft 
1978. There were they they had they had discovered the process back in the late 70s, early 80s, of these of these airships creating so much energy, basically creating an an electromagnetic envelope around the aircraft. We see that continue today with uh, Dr. Pye's uh, patents that they they put in for the U.F. Navy. The stuff's gotten so advanced. Whether it was back engineered or whether these guys just created it from their own from their own work, let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say that guys like guys like Kelly and Rich just made this stuff up out of whole cloth. You have to admit that the technology for these planes has gotten so advanced and so complicated that it really does it really does imitate what we would think of is unidentified flying objects, the way that it's able to move. The, the the holdout, though, is the person flying the plane. You could create planes to do some of the things that UFOs do. You, you might be able to create machines that could travel at these enormous speeds and make uh, right-angle turns, you know, at Mach 3 or Mach 4, reaching, reaching Mach 135, I think they said, the one UFO did. But the question is, how would you keep the pilot alive? There would have to be some way that you were um, keeping that environment within the plane, some kind of anti-gravity environment within the plane. Either way, these guys were doing cutting-edge stuff clear back in the, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and that's been kind of a hallmark of the skunk works. Now, you can go ahead and, and read some more of the stuff here. It's on the uh, link there at the Twitter account, UFO Warning. It's fascinating stuff. But it's important, I think, to see that the technology has reached such a level that it's it's almost impossible to tell where human techno- technology ends and alien technology begins. Or perhaps, as some say, our own human technology is so advanced that it's being mistaken for alien technology. Time will tell. Now, there's another article here I want to look at because Ben Rich is kind of the focus here. And there are other players that I want to go back and talk about later on in future podcasts. But we'll see here in a minute why I'm focused on Ben Rich. Okay, now this is also from Wikipedia. And it says, Benjamin Robert Rich uh, lived from June 18, 1925 to January 5, 1995. He was only 69 when he died. Was an American engineer and the second director of Lockheed Skunk Works from 1975 to 1991 succeeding its founder, Kelly Johnson. Regarded as the father of stealth, Rich was responsible for leading the development of the F-117, the first production stealth aircraft. He also worked on the F-104, U-2, A-12, SR-71, and F-22, among others. Now, it says here that he was born in Manila, Philippines. Uh, he died in Madera, California, January 5, 1995, age 69. Of course, he was American, education at UCLA, UC Berkeley, Harvard Business School, and regarded as the father of the stealth. Now, it's a little interesting here. It says, Rich was born in Manila in the Philippines. He was one of five children of British lumber mill superintendent Isidore Rich and his French wife, and the daughter of one of his paternal grandfather's Jewish customers who lived in Alexandria, Egypt. The Rich family was one of the first Jewish families to settle in Manila, having fled the Philippines just weeks before the Empire of Japan's attack on Pearl Harbor 
they moved to the United States in 1942, where Rich became a naturalized U.S. citizen. So you see he moved here at about age 17, escaping the Japanese invasion of the Philippines. In 1942, where Rich became a naturalized citizen, he worked with his father in a Los Angeles, California machine shop during World War II, and studied at the city's Hamilton High School. After the war, he started his college education when he was 21, majoring in mechanical engineering at UC Berkeley, followed by a master's degree in aeronautical engineering at UCLA, instead of the medical field as he originally planned, and he would later complete the advanced management program at Harvard Business School. Obviously, just a, uh, a really smart guy. Now, that's a little bit of the background. So this guy's born uh, there comes from the Philippines, naturalized U.S. citizen. But some of the things about him take a little bit of a turn toward high strangeness. And just before I get into that, though, I want to point out, I loaded a video here. There's a link to it. You can go to it from the Twitter warning, the UFO warning Twitter account. It's about a five-minute uh, video. I think it's... Um, not the History Channel, but it's another one here. You can go look at this video, and, and one of the fellows, uh, I'm blanking his name right now, he talks about an encounter that he had with um, Ben Rich back in the early 90s where he was uh, giving a speech, and apparently he went on a speaking tour after he retired from Lockheed. And in this uh, interview, he relates that uh, Rich uh, made a couple of comments uh, one of the comments was, um, in effect, stating that we now have the technology to take E.T. home. That's a pretty famous quote from Ben Rich. And then the second comment he makes, he relates in that interview, is how after uh, the seminar or speech, whatever he'd gone to with a friend, he followed Rich out to his car, and he questioned him about this notion of um, the American, you know, the U.S. Air Force now being able to take E.T. home. In other words, having... Uh, space travel technology to the stars. And according to him, Rich, uh, Rich made uh, the statement uh, regarding this saying uh, that uh, to the effect that uh, it would be like ESP. Space travel would work like ESP, that all points in space and time are connected. Now that's what Rich said according to him. And coming from this, and this story's been repeated a lot, and it's on the internet. You can look it up. If you just type in Ben Rich quotes, you'll get those quotes uh, verbatim. A lot of people have thought that that was somehow an admission from Ben Rich that the United States had back-engineered UFO technology and uh, we were using it and that they had also um, they had also basically broken the code that we had come to understand that all points uh, in time and space are connected. Kind of a, kind of a quantum... Uh, thing there. That seems like a little bit of a leap to me. Um, I don't see Ben Rich as being the kind of guy, uh, as far as I know from what I could read, he never disclosed anything that was classified. He kept all of his secrecy oaths um, until he died. So I don't see that as uh, him giving us some kind of disclosure. Some people, and I'll get to that in a minute here, say that was just kind of a thing he did with his speeches. Uh, to him it was a little joke. Uh, you know, he was on the speaking circuit. He was probably making pretty good money at it. And as I explain, and I'll, re and I'll read here in a minute, um, that was kind of his stick. He kind of read the same speech over and over again. And I think that if you know anything about the speaking circuit, that's what happens. Whether 
you know, whether it's a UFO conventions or, you know, the self-help people, whatever, they seem to get into this deal where they have a speech and they keep giving the same speech over and over again and because it works. And I, and I think that was kind of why he put that tagline in there was because it worked. Now, that's not to say they didn't make some enormous uh, technological breakthroughs and it's not to say that it's not a possibility that they hadn't back-engineered some stuff. So I want to look at this. Um, I would recommend going and watching that video. It's about five minutes. You can take a look at that. And then there's a couple other things on here. Um, there's a little thing that was put out by Lockheed Martin. And I think it's important not just to... When we talk about these icons of the UFO phenomena investigation... It's not just important to read the stuff about them that we find in the alternative news or Wikipedia. I think it's good sometimes just to take a look at what they say about themselves. Okay? And then we can compare that as a standard. And here, from LockheedMartin.com, it says, Ben Rich, the Invisible Man. In the summer of 1972, Ben Rich, one of the most seasoned engineers in Lockheed Martin's Skunk Works division, stood nervously outside the office of his boss, legendary Clarence Kelly Johnson, in the 18 years since Johnson recruited Rich to join Skunk Works, the two men had developed a unique, almost father-son relationship. Rich had helped his mentor show, shore up thermodynamic and propulsion issues with some, of the, with some of Johnson's most famous creations, including the F-104 Interceptor and the SR-71 Blackbird. And in return, Johnson had taken Rich under his wing, letting him tag along to meetings with military officials. Rich had come to tell Johnson that he'd been offered a new position at a rival airplane manufacturer. Kelly listened, shook his head, and then offered up a, a secret of his own. Johnson told his protege that in three years he would be retiring, and when he did, he planned to personally recommend Rich to take over as director of the Skunk Works, of the, Skunk Works the most prestigious engineering post in the history of of aviation. Rich stayed and Johnson delivered on his promise, helping his protege win the post he not only desired but richly deserved. And then it goes on and says, unlike Johnson, an often intimidating figure, the more affable Rich was more of a bridge builder, listening carefully to the wishes of his customers and then thoughtfully delegating responsibilities to turn their needs into breakthrough aircraft. For military officials accustomed to dealing with Johnson's brusque personality, Rich provided a different approach. He quickly won over the Pentagon with a redesign of the division's famed U-2 spy plane to meet more contemporary mission requirements and then turned his attention to selling the one plane he believed believed in more than any other, the F-117 stealth fighter. Rich took a great gamble in supporting his team's unusual but ultimately revolutionary stealthy diamond-shaped design, especially so early in his tenure. Kelly didn't like the look of it. Naysayers called it hopeless diamond, called it the hopeless diamond. But Rich pressed on, confident his team was on top, was on the cusp of a breakthrough that would render the aircraft practically invisible to enemy radar. You see, this guy was way ahead of his time. In time, Rich would prove to be a perfect manager for the project, a savvy salesman, encouraging team builder, and a decisive team leader all in one. Dubious engineers were quickly given Stealth 101 classes to better inform them of the technology. So do you see this? It's like this stuff is so advanced that Rich has to educate the engineers who are going to build it on the technology that they're going to be using. 
That's kind of perplexing. I mean, either this guy was such a genius that he had developed and discovered whole new ways of doing things that 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 his uh, own engineers, smart guys themselves, hadn't even thought of, or he got his hands on some kind of material and back engineered it. It really makes you wonder. It says dubious engineers were quickly given stealth 101 classes to better inform them of the technology. Later in the project, when the Air Force requested the creation of two experimental prototypes in only 14 months, he used existing hardware from other programs to save money and meet what was considered a near-impossible deadline. And when an official shoot-down test was scheduled for 1979, it was Rich who flew out to the Nevada desert and personally watched as his invisible warbird slipped past radar defenses undetected. Under Rich's leadership, Lockheed won the Cell Fighter competition, and on June 18, 1981, Rich's 55th birthday, he watched as an F-117A Nighthawk took off on the first official test flight, changing the nature of aerial warfare forever. It goes on, it says, a legend in his own right, by sheer coincidence, a first tactical strike by an F-17 Nighthawk would occur in 1991, on the same day is Rich's official retirement banquet. One of the pilots of the 37th Tactical Fighter Wing who flew the plane's first combat mission said he, de- said he dedicated the first strike to Rich, later handing him a tiny American flag that he'd set in his cockpit during the flight. It was a token of his, gra- of his gratitude for creating the world's first invisible aircraft. According to Rich, Johnson's ghostly voice nagged at him during his entire tenure as Skunk Works director, but by the time of Rich's retirement, Skunk Works was as much a reflection of the protege as a mentor. Rich's efforts in shaping the Nighthawk had not only won him the prestigious Collier Trophy in the 1990, but the respect of even the most diehard Kelly supporters through an unusual mix of optimism, pluck, and old and old fashioned intelligence, Rich had only preserved Skunk Works reputation had not only preserved Skunk Works reputation, but had enhanced it. We can see from that short clip there, this guy was an incredibly I mean super intelligent genius IQ type guy. So I have to think that he wasn't out there just popping things off the top of his head to grab attention. He didn't need attention. I mean, for crying out loud, he ran the program that created the stealth fighter. Perhaps this guy was just so smart that sometimes he said things uh, that he assumed other people would automatically understand and appreciate. And maybe some of the people in the UFO community have taken them a little too strong. I don't know. There's one article here that talks about this a little bit. And I'm going to go through this because there's been a lot said about this guy with the notion that he has, um, that he gave disclosure of UFOs. And I, and I really think that, well, that might be true. I think it's, there's not enough evidence to show that's exactly what happened. Now, this comes from Norio Hayakawa. Uh, it's a, word, a WordPress, and it's from four years ago, and it says, Ben Rich, misquoted by many in the UFO community. I think he makes some good points here. Normally, you know, I'm not the debunker type, but I think it's important that we consider all the evidence when we talk about these giants in the UFO uh, paradigm. And Ben Rich certainly is a giant uh, who's looked back at many times, and many people quote as one of the first uh, government or even deep state actors to... Uh, give disclosure. And I just think that we need to be a little careful about uh, 
making that assumption without looking at all the facts. Now it says Binrich, born June 18, 1925, January 5, 1955, was the second director of Lockheed Skunk Works from 1975 to 1991, succeeding its founder, Kelly Johnson. Regarded as the father of stealth, Rich was responsible for leading the development of the F-115, the first production stealth aircraft. He also worked on the F-104, U-2, A-12, SR-71, and F-22, among others. He is the author of Skunk Works, a personal memoir of my years of Lockheed. Now it says, false, unsubstantiated rumors abound when it comes to misquotes cited by many gullible UFO researchers. Many in the UFO community seem to believe that Ben Rich stated during a 1993 alumni speech at UCLA, quote, We already have the means to travel among the stars, but these technologies are locked up in black projects, and it would take an act of God to ever get them out to benefit humanity. Anything you can imagine, we already know how to do. Now it says, they're saying here that that quote's not correct. It says this is far from the truth. Ben Rich never said any such a thing seriously. And it goes here, it says, From Shadowhawk, Peter Merlin, August 27, 2013. Peter Merlin, in my opinion, is one of the most knowledgeable and respected military aviation historians at the present time. I had the honor of meeting him in 2005 at the 50th anniversary celebration of Area 51, which was held at the perimeters. And it says, quote, Ben Rich is constantly misquoted as saying, we now have the technology to take E.T. home. That is not what he said. At the end of his presentation, he showed his final slide, a picture of a disc-shaped craft, the classic flying saucer, flying into a partly cloudy sky with a burst of sunlight in the background, and he gave his standard tagline. It was a joke. He had used in numerous presentations since 1983. When Steven Spielberg's E.T. the Extraterrestrial, a film about a young boy befriending a lost visitor from space and helping the alien get home, had become the highest grossing film of all time, Rich apparently decided to capitalize on, his, on this popularity. By the summer of 1983, he had added the flying saucer picture to the end of a set, between, the end of, a set of between 12 and 25 slides that he showed with his lecture on the history of Lockheed's famed Skunk Works division. Rich had long used a standard script for his talks, tailoring the content as necessary to accommodate his audience. Since most Skunk Works' current projects were classified, it didn't matter whether he was addressing schoolchildren or professional aeronautical engineers, he always ended the same way. At a defense symposium on future space systems in Washington, D.C. on September 20, 1983, he said, Unfortunately, I cannot tell you what we have been doing for the last ten years. It seems we score a breakthrough at the Skunk Works every decade. So if you invite me back in 10 years, I'll be able to tell you what we are doing now. I can, I, I can tell you about a contract we recently received. The Skunk Works has been assigned the task of getting E.T. back home. The audience laughed and it, the audience laughed as it was meant to. So they're saying it was just a joke. It seemed <clears throat> something is successful. If it is worth repeating, Rich gave an identical speech at the U.S. Naval Academy in Annapolis, Maryland on September 6, 1984, and continued using his script during successive appearances. Sometimes he redefined the details a bit. I wish I could tell you that 
I wish I could tell you what else we are doing in the Skunk Works, he said, wrapping up a presentation for the Beverly Hills chapter of the National Society of Daughters of the American Revolution on May 23, 1990. You'll have to come back in a few years. I will conclude by telling you that last week we, we received a contract to take E.T. back home. Three years later, he was still using the same line and the same slide. We did the F-104, C-130, U-2, SR-71, F-117, and many other programs that I can't talk about, he proclaimed during a 1993 speech at the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, Ohio, home of Air Force Material Command, the, organizational, the organization responsible for all, <clears throat> all flight testing within the Air Force. We are still working very hard. I just can't tell you what we are doing. As usual, he added his by-now infamous punchline, the Air Force has just given us a contract to take E.T. back home. Within the UFO community, Rich's words and additional statements attributed to him without corroborative proof have become gospel. He is named as having admitted that extraterrestrial UFO visitors are real and that the U.S. military has interstellar capabilities. And although nearly two full years passed between Rich's UCLA speech and his death in 1995, some believers have touted his comments as a deathbed confession. It was nothing of the kind. Rich, a brilliant scientist, apparently believed in the existence of other intelligence life in the universe, though only as something distant and mysterious. In July 1986, after, after Tester Corporation model kit designer John Andrews wrote asking what he thought about the possible existence of either man-made or extraterrestrial UFOs, Rich responded, I'm a believer in both categories. I feel everything is possible. He cautioned, however, that in both categories there are a lot of kooks and charlatans be cautious. What you see here, it sounds like he was a real smart man that had compartmentalized the notion of ETs, NHEs, whatever. And that while he, he was open to the possibility that they existed, he certainly wasn't going to disclose that. Now maybe he knew better, maybe he knew more. But this guy, was he was top secret clearance. And it sounds to me like he's just, uh, you, you know, I mean, I guess you could call this guy deep state. He's definitely uh, someone who's passed a lot of uh, high-level intelligence and uh, that type of background. He's not going to disclose something even if he does know it. This is a tough nut to crack. So I, so I really, the more I read this article, the more I see the fact that, that Ben Rich was just a super smart guy that invented a bunch of airplanes that, that, that rented projects that invented some of the, that, that created the most advanced aircraft we've ever known. He understood physics at a level that was so high he had to retrain his engineers. But I don't see him as being uh, this this guy who's offering the UFO community community disclosure. I just don't think that's a need that he had. I see him as being a super smart, super hardworking guy that for the last three or four or five years of his life, he went around, uh, he gave some speeches, he made a little extra money, he had a lot of fun doing it. And it was it was something at the ice cream and cake level. He wasn't getting into deep disclosure. And as far as comments that he may or may not have made about uh, space travel being like uh, ESP, all points in time and space connected, I don't know. I'll tell you what it looks like. He looks like one of these guys who's so smart that the average person couldn't have really had a productive conversation with him anyway. The guy's, the guy's a genius. So for him to have that kind of a conversation with, with even, even say, a scientist, 
just you just haphazardly seems okay let's just assume it happened but you notice it didn't go any further than that it's like this guy is so smart that all of his speech is directed speech anyway he's not sitting down having a sit down with a bunch of UFO enthusiasts that, that's not that's not even in the picture it goes on it says no matter how many years had passed since the last time he said it it was always we just got a contract of a few weeks ago received a contract that was a part of the gag, making it sound like a current Skunks Works project, but Rich kept copies of his scripts, which he reused according to the needs of his audience, along with the photocopies of all the slides, including the flying saucer. So these details are easy to verify. Well, you see, he's sticking to the script. And that's a smart thing for a guy like him to do. I mean, the last thing he needs to do is get jammed up because somebody accused him of, of sharing classified information. You can see what's happening here. He's got this very kind of bare-bones little thing he does. Most people are probably just there because they're fans. They want to they wanna see and maybe shake the hand of the guy that, that uh, invented the F-117. I mean, he's kind of a celebrity. And this is, to me, a celebrity tour. It's not a disclosure tour. It says, John Harzan, now executive director of MUFON, attended the March 1993 lecture at the University of California, Los Angeles, with fellow UCLA engineering alumnus and UFO enthusiast Todd, Tom Keller. Keller, an aerospace engineer who has worked as a computer systems analyst for NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, wrote about it in the May 2010 issue of MUFON. He said, Harzan recently shared this story in January 2012, interview with Web Talk Radio and another uh, ally. Alejandro Rojos of Open Minds UFO News Investigations in July 2013. Harzan says that after the lecture ended, a few people remained behind to ask questions. Some wanted to know more about the technology to take ET home. Harzan says Rich initially brushed off these queries, but allegedly told one engineer, you now know how to travel to the stars. We found an error in the equations, and it won't take a lifetime to do it. I have also heard Rich's statement quoted as, First, you have to understand that we will not get to the stars using chemical propulsion. Second, we have to devise a new propulsion technology. What we have to do is find out where Einstein went wrong. Unfortunately, neither quote is verifiable, is verifiable, but the second one sounds more like the words of an engineer, especially one with Rich's stated views as outlined in his letter to John Andrews. As things begin to wind down after the UCLA speech, Rich said, I've got to go now, and started to walk out of the room. Harzan pursued him and continued to ask him about the workings of the interstellar propulsion systems. It was an unanswerable question in the light of our current scientific knowledge. Rich finally stopped and turned and then asked Harzan an unanswerable question of his own. Well, let me ask you, how does ESP work? Stunned, Harzan stammered, I don't know. All points in space and time are connected. Rich responded, that's how it works then abruptly turned and walked away. From the tone of the exchange, it sounds more like Rich, having been kept well past his planned departure time, and tired of being pestered, was simply anxious to, to leave, and not that he was sharing some technological secret. Harzan and others have interpreted Rich's final comments as a tacit admission that interstellar propulsion technology exists, that it is in the hands of the U.S. scientist, and that it involves a specific sort of known equations. But taken in context, it sounds more like Rich carried this joke too far and talked himself into a corner. It is likely that he would have said, that's how it works, no matter what Harzan's answer to the ESP question. Even if Rich had said, look, I was just kidding, it would have done, it, it would have done no good, the damage was done. And then it says, in 1994, a year after the UCLA lecture, 
Rich told Popular Mag Science Magazine, we have some new things at the Skunk Works. We are not stagnating. What we are doing is updating ourselves without advertising. There are some new programs, and there are certain things, some of them 20 or 30 years old, that are still breakthroughs and are appropriate to keep quiet about because other people don't have them yet. He didn't disclose or even hint at any advanced interstellar propulsion technologies because there was nothing to disclose. Wow. Now, that does sound like a pretty good counter-argument to the, to the notion that Ben Rich was in the habit of giving disclosure about interstellar travel. All these articles are, are fun to read, and sometimes, you know, when we get the information second-hand, it's easy to uh, accept it or, or simply discard it. I think it's always good to go back, examine the facts, and examine the origin of the facts. And you have to admit, Ben Rich was was a super uh, smart guy. And I don't think he would have just been out there, you know, talking about this stuff flippantly. As this, uh, as the last author said, he was he was on the speaking circuit. Uh, he was out there meeting people, just enjoying himself, probably making a little extra money. And he was it was not a UFO disclosure tour. Now, if you like the program, of course, you can stop by Anchor. You can support the program. Uh, you can go to the Twitter account, UFO Warning. You can do a follow. I do follow backs. Until next time, this is UFO Warning, over and out.